Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Kyle. Happy to be back. And also back after a little bit of a break, we are excited to have you back on the podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me back. And um, I'm really happy to be here. So on this week's show, we are going to talk about a lot of news has been, that has been swirling around in Georgia politics about the state's voting system. We've got movement this week on a lawsuit that is attempting to stop the Secretary of State from purging over 100,000 people from the state's voter rolls. That's a lawsuit filed by Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Group. We've also got criticism of the rollout of the new voting machines from advocacy groups that include Fair Fight. And we have a brand new study from the AJC where they took a look at the distance that people have to travel from their home to their precinct and how it impacted their likelihood to vote. So we're going to talk about this kind of grab bag of issues that's going on in voting and sort of give you an update on where some of these policies are. Then for our second topic this week, we are entering a very historic week in terms of the impeachment inquiry and the attempt by Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives to hold President Trump accountable for what they argue is an abuse of the president's authority and an obstruction of justice when he pressured the Ukrainian president to announce an investigation of former vice president, current presidential candidate Joe Biden, to try to further the president's political prospects as we head towards the 2020 election. It is likely that the House will vote on two articles of impeachment this week, and then we will see how this process moves forward in the Senate. So we're going to take a look at all of those issues from a Georgia angle. But first, let's go and start with all of the news that is swirling around on issues related to voting. I think the most interesting thing that I saw in the last week was this AJC study where they took voter data and they mapped how long a person had to travel from their home to their voting precinct, and they measured what the impact was on increasing the distance that somebody had to travel to go vote and whether or not it impacted the likelihood that they would ultimately vote. And they did find a relationship between the distance people had to travel and their likelihood of voting. They estimated that between 54 and 85,000 voters were dissuaded from casting a ballot on election day in 2018 because of increased distances that they had to travel to vote. Luke, let's start with you. What is your kind of 30,000 foot reaction to this finding that you can look at voted voter data and see that the longer that you have to travel to vote means that you're less likely to do so? Isn't that obvious? <laughs> I mean, you know, they, you know I, I'm one of the few people uh, that I know and people make fun of me because there's a single movie theater in Athens that I really like that's really far away. And everyone's, you know, like constantly making fun of me for always going to that theater. And I kind of feel like this is the same thing in that, like, I really don't care how long I would have to go to go vote. I would do it because I really like voting the same way. I really like that movie theater, but you know, other people aren't willing to go to university 16, which is like literally on the other side of Athens uh, for most people. Uh, But I am. And so, you know, just even that simple movie theater example to me highlights the obvious truth of this is that like no matter how important or fun or exciting something is if it's further away less people are going to do it um so yeah like this is unshocking i'm really happy they did this research though because it's good that you know my anecdote is now based in uh data right well speaking as somebody who doesn't own a car um i will just say that i can walk to my current polling place um, it's only a few blocks, and if I had to do something else to get to my current polling place, such as if I needed to take a bus, especially since the MARTA buses don't necessarily run on a great schedule or on time a lot of the time, um, that makes voting a lot more difficult for me. And this occurs against a backdrop where county election officials have shut down 8% of Georgia's polling places and relocated nearly 40% of the state's precincts in recent years. Georgia has also had the third highest rate of precinct closures in the entire country since the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision that invalidated a section of the Voting Rights Act that would have required counties, which 
county governments are the ones that make decisions about how many precincts to have, where they're located. Prior to that Supreme Court decision in 2013, they would have had to clear precinct closures with the federal government, with the Department of Justice. They have been freed from doing that. And it appears that it has accelerated the rate at which precincts are being closed. And Megan, the the transit issue is one that is relevant, not only in downtown Atlanta, or particularly in metro Atlanta, it's also an issue that is relevant in rural Georgia for people who don't have cars, because there were even precincts that were within some communities, communities that were within walking distance, or the kind of distance where it was easy to get a ride from a friend if you didn't have a car when those precincts are moved from neighborhood locations to, in some cases, one central precinct location, like at the the county seat of government, it does increase the burden on people to be able to exercise their right to vote. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing is, like, I live in Oglethorpe County, and it's it's pretty sparse, which I love. Uh, and, you know, things are far away, so I, I'm isolating out here as I want to be. But several precincts in Oglethorpe closed down. And so for, luckily not for me, but for some other folks, uh, some of my, you know, uh, soon-to-be relatives in, in the county, uh, you know, they went from having to, you know, go a couple minutes down the street to going like 30, 45 minutes away because Oglethorpe is ridiculously huge as a county. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, this is a real being a real problem and you know the again these results are not surprising to me but i think it's really important that we we do have them and you know the, the thing is why i think this study is important and i'm happy we're talking about it is there are the obvious partisan reasons why some of these counties did this and i do not doubt no matter how much they tell you that that's not why they did it that for some counties that is why they did it but for i'm sure also there are some counties uh, that just like looked at the money and, you know, we're like, there's only a hundred people voting at this precinct or there's only 500 people voting at this precinct. Is it really worth it to have it open? And we really did not have good information on the other side of that question because the side that they were looking at and probably prioritizing was how much money does it cost to have this precinct open, to train people, to run it, to, you know, do everything they have to do on election day. And not having a clear representation of the cost of not having those things make it easier for them to close down these precincts. So now that this research is out there, hopefully uh, counties that are well-intentioned that aren't trying to uh, just arbitrarily close down count, uh, precincts so, uh, and voting locations so that turnout goes down for their political opponents can have you know something to look at to make more informed decisions so that the precincts that should stay open do stay open and that uh, for folks who are just doing things for blatantly political reasons are easier to be called out for it. Well, and this study was immediately injected into the partisan debate over this issue. Uh, people on the left saw this study, saw the estimate that between 54,000 and 85,000 voters were dissuaded from casting ballots because of distance, and looked at the the gap between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp in the last election, which was, I believe, 55,000, if my numbers are correct. And they wanted to assert that it was likely that precinct distance actually cost Stacey Abrams the governor's office, and that this was another example of voter suppression by Republicans seeking to hold on to political power. On the right, I saw a couple people like Eric Erickson, conservative radio host, Josh McCoon, former candidate for Secretary of State, former member of the state legislature, said that the narrative about the partisan motivations on this issue is completely overblown, that it's an issue of cost for counties and local elections officials. Megan, what do you think about the competing narratives that are developing around this study? And do you feel like that there might be a larger point that's being missed in the partisan back and forth over this issue? So I really think that this is just a lot of finger pointing and a lot of people not, when I say people, I mean, Republicans not wanting to own the data that's in front of them or, you know, back before we had such good data, um, just the information that's being given to them. I don't really have that much else to say on this. I just I really think that it's willful ignorance. 
Well, I think I, I gave you a somewhat leading question because I have a general frustration about the way in which this information is leveraged in the conversation. So the AJC asserted in their article that the outcome here was not determinative in the election. And backers of Stacey Abrams on Twitter said that the AJC actually got it wrong and that this is what caused Stacey Abrams the election. I think the study just doesn't give you that information one way or the other. And I think my frustration is it overlooks the fact that whether or not this was determinative in an election, there are tens of thousands of people whose access to the ballot might have been infringed by the distance they had to travel to the polls or their registration being canceled or the fact that they had to cast a provisional ballot or the lines that greeted them when they got to their polling places. We've discussed a lot of issues with our voting system over over the last few months since the 2018 elections. And in every one of those instances, there is an individual person who it's possible that their right to vote was infringed. And so this conversation completely overlooks the experience of that person and the fact that our policies, regardless of their intent and regardless of their effect on election results, were not serving all of those individual people whose right to vote may have been infringed by the structure that we have. And I think that that is, it deserves to be the focus of this conversation, because if you take it from that lens, then you start to look at the state having a responsibility to provide additional funding to keep these precincts open to be sure that when they do voter purges from the registration rolls, like we'll talk about here in a second, that those are done in a way that a person does not lose their right to vote if they deserve to be able to keep it. It's it's the lens at which we consider this conversation that is frustrating to me and one that I wish would shift. Yes. So a second major issue of discussion within Voting and access to the ballot right now is this effort by the Secretary of State's office to purge over 300,000 voters from the rolls. The Secretary of State's office argues that people on this purge list, it appears from data that they have, have either moved or they've died or for some other reason they are not eligible to vote in the jurisdiction that the data says that they are living in. Um, I am actually on this purge list because... I realized that my registration when I lived in Athens six years ago is sort of coming up to this timeline. Um, so there are some, I don't live in Georgia anymore, so there are some voters like me who should be purged from the list. But what Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams' group, is arguing in court this week is that there are 120,000 of those voters on the list who failed to have contact with election infrastructure in the state. It means not voting or not returning a postcard that questions whether or not you live at the address at which you are registered, that the time period that a voter is allowed to not have contact with the state before their vote is purged, that that time period has not been met under new changes to the law that were made in the 2019 legislative session. So this week, they filed a motion in court to get a temporary restraining order to stop the state from purging 120,000 people from the rolls. Um, that motion was denied. So that purge moved forward on Monday night. But it moved forward partially based on the argument that the state says that if they lose the case, and if they find that these people are wrongfully purged, they can be reinstated in a short time period and that their registration basically would not be impacted. There has been increased scrutiny on these purge practices. Uh, people who are critical of them say this is just another plank in the voter suppression toolkit that Republicans have used. Defenders of this purge process will say that this is a responsible way to manage the voter rolls, keep them up to date. What is y'all's reaction to this general discussion around voter purges? As you might expect, I have a lot of concerns about how the situation situation is being handled and also um, who is being affected by the situation. So one of the issues is that if you show up to your polling place and didn't realize you were purged, since Georgia doesn't have same day voting, um, you can't fix it that day. You're just SOL and you can't vote for something that you planned on voting for or an election you planned on voting in. And 
can't do deadly squat about it. Um, another issue that I have is based on, you know, my focus on a lot of diversity and inclusion related items. It potentially affects people who are lower income, who may um, have more transient living situations. And it also disproportionately affects people of color. And so, and we've, We've seen this in some of the reporting out of Ohio and with Georgia having a very diverse population, this probably holds true for Georgia as well. So it's just not a, you know, we talk about fairness and and whatnot. This is not fair. This does not take into account um, people who don't live the same lifestyle that some people who work uh, at, down at our capital do. They don't have the nine to five job or the office job or the steady living situation that a lot of people have that are pushing through these policies and make laws and make decisions about how we vote here in Georgia. So the way I look at this with the purge issue and with the precinct issue we were just talking about is that unfortunately, the Georgia Secretary of State uh, office, you know, under Brian Kemp and now under Brad Raffensperger, they just lack credibility on this issue. And the reason why is this is not a situation where, you know, Georgia is just purging people or they're just closing precincts. Georgia is just aggressively pursuing everything that, you know, anecdotal uh, accounts, but also like hard research shows reduces turnout and reduces vote and does so especially among minority communities. Like there's a reason that, you know, every time one of these studies comes out, you know, everything caused Stacey Abrams to lose because the, you know, Occam's razor here, folks, like what is the easiest explanation for why they are doing all of these things? The easiest explanation is because it's politically advantageous to them because Doing some of them could be explained by other situations and other motives, but the fact they're doing literally all of them uh, makes me especially less, uh, you know, swayed by other arguments. And like, you know, on the purge issue, like, (laughs) let me tell you why. So according to the AJC, since 2012, 1.4 million people have been removed from Georgia's voting rolls, which is a lot of people. Um, Georgia also has the single largest purge in the United States of America. Uh, and, you know, just in case you forgot, Georgia is not the most populous state in the country. Uh, that purge in July of 2017 was 534,000 people. And now on the back of that one, just two years ago, we're looking to purge another another 330,000 people, which represents 4% of the current Georgia electorate. Um, now, are there some people on there like Kyle that need to be purged? I absolutely don't doubt that. I'm sure there are. But that being said... Yeah, Kyle. The, yeah, Kyle, what, what's wrong with you? But anyway... Do you um, think Raffensperger is going to call me and make me a spokesman for the purge? I really don't think he will. But, you know, it's like... In this situation, where all of these things are happening continuously, it it just makes me skeptical. And I think it makes a lot of other people skeptical. One of the other reasons I'm skeptical is the infamous uh, purge mailers. I got one. I got one in December of 2018. You know what I did in November of 2018? Vote. And it wasn't even the first time I voted at that <laughs> that address. I voted multiple times at that address, and I got one of the purge letters. So if they're sending them to me, Luke Boggs, who literally votes every single time, every single time, if they're sending it to me, like, who else are they sending them to? And so it's just they have no credibility because when they, you know, change the voting machines and spend a bunch of money on voting machines that people don't think are going to work and have a lot of problems with, and then they are purging everyone, and then they use exact match, and then they are closing precincts, it's really, really hard to believe them when they say we're totally not doing all of these things because we don't want black people to vote or we don't want Democrats to vote. We're doing it for insert benevolent reason here that none of the data backs up. Well, and it's also true that in other contexts, they have admitted to partisan motivations. I mean, there was mid-session redistricting where there was testimony in court from state officials that they had been instructed to draw districts that were aimed at maximizing Republican chances to win. Now, I mean, that was just a couple of handful of districts. 
where the shifts were relatively minor in the borders of these districts, but they admitted in court that there were partisan motivations because the way the law is set up and the way it was being challenged in that particular court case was it was okay to have partisan motivations for drawing your districts. It was not okay to have racial motivations. So they admitted that. There was a purge process in Wisconsin that has been going forward where there's a conservative group that has openly made partisan arguments about the purge process that sort of exploited a relative weakness in Wisconsin's law around voter registration to get them to purge people from their roles where they knew, based on the data that they were using, that the data was incorrect. So it, you know, often you see this fallback on some sort of a benevolent reason, but it's, but there are other instances where it's easy to find partisan motivations or motivations that serve a partisan interest where in the Wisconsin case, you're taking advantage of a weakness in the law. So Luke, you previously gave me a good segue into the final plank of things that are going on in this discussion around voting systems in Georgia right now, and that is the implementation of new voting machines. Um, There was an analysis done recently by Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams Group, in conjunction with the libertarian free market group, FreedomWorks, and another group of just general election advocates that criticized the state for the costs to implement this new voting system that they were putting on counties by not buying enough voting machines to meet legally mandated machine to voter ratios, and that there are other costs for counties that are not being properly considered by the state. The Secretary of State contested that analysis from those groups. Up at the office at the same time turned around and announced that they were actually buying more voting machines than was in the original proposal. Seemed to somewhat address the concerns of this analysis while refusing to validate it as as having any merit. Luke, I know you read a little bit about the implementation of these machines. They're supposed to all be in place for the presidential preference primary next spring in Georgia. What's kind of the status of implementation on this new voting system? Well, well, Kyle, let me read you a report from the Secretary of State's office, the, the same office I just heavily criticized. So, uh, you know, on that front, uh, take this with a grain of salt. So we, uh, the state of Georgia tested out the new voting machines in nine counties for the November municipal elections. So the report, again, from the Secretary of State, so this is not a unbiased report uh, since they are promoters of the machines, they they reported that there was 45 incidents out of 27,000 votes, which, you know, is pretty low. Um, And they also said that out of the 576 machines, they had to take out four of them. And out of 83 scanners, they had to take out one of those. Um, They also said that uh, nearly all the issues were caused by human error or interaction, which can be mitigated through training or uh, identified through testing. So this report is 19 pages. Uh, I would suggest listeners look it up on the AJC. We can post it in show notes and just like look through it because it's it's really not 19 pages of content. It's just the formatting makes it 19 pages. And they go like line by line of what the issues were. And, you know, they're pretty interesting. My favorite one is that someone instead of using the card that the uh, poll worker gave them, they put their driver's license into one of the machines and that broke them, broke the machine for like the rest of the day. Um, oh no. So That's bad. yeah. Oh no. Oh no. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, basically it just seemed like, as they said, it seemed like little, you know, minor issues of, you know, user error. But the, the thing I think is like missing from this report is, a lot of details of like how it went, how fast it was going, um, you know, how long were the lines, the issues that really tell someone like how a voting system is working really isn't there because one of the uh, reports, you know, in the incident reports was a lot more thorough than the other ones and like mentioned the like, you know, like screen went blank, couldn't get people to, you know, couldn't uh, get to work, people are leaving. But it's like, it's not tracking like how many people left or how long was the line? How long did it take for this, you know, problem to get resolved? Because I would go back to where I started with this report is this was 
27,000 votes, which, you know, again, going back to how many people they purged and how many people are registered in the state of Georgia, this is incredibly small. This is an incredibly small sample size. Pretty much all the counties that they did uh, this pilot in, with the exception of Cobb, are pretty small. And so I, I just really think that this is not a sample size that gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to pull this off because no, you know, off year municipal elections in small counties are pretty low turnout. Megan, to, to wrap up here, there was a state elections board meeting today. I'm not fully briefed on everything that went on. I caught a little bit of it on Twitter, but one thing I noticed is that there were concerns among local officials that there wasn't enough training for poll workers to operate this new system when it gets rolled out, concerns that there wouldn't be enough training between now and March. How important is it when you're doing any kind of new technology rollout to be sure that the people who are running it are well-trained on how to use it? It's imperative. Like there, there's no way around it. If you don't have someone at each poll site that can completely troubleshoot the machine that knows what the errors mean, or at least has the resources to look them up if it's generating errors, um, and that is truly tech savvy and feels comfortable with the tech, um, then you might as well just not even have it. Because at best, what you're going to get is a reboot and try again, if, if people aren't comfortable with the tech. And quite frankly, I will let you know that some of my interactions at polling places, some of the people who are working the polls have made it clear that they don't like the cards or they don't like the machines or, oh, well, that machine's just, just acting up and, you know, whatever, you know, they don't, they don't really feel empowered or equipped to deal with it. Um, and there's no one around who is empowered or comfortable troubleshooting the machine. And that's a massive problem. They really need tech support at every single polling place. Um, and short of that, which I'm sure would be very expensive, they need the people running the polling places to be comfortable with the new technology. And I just don't see that happening. Well, and another problem with this is that even, you know, the state wasn't 100% comfortable with these machines because some, you know, some, one of the problems that they ran into was that some of the machines weren't able to like set up the voting card uh, properly because they would get stuck asking the voter which party they were voting for, which there's a problem with that. The municipal elections are mostly nonpartisan. And so basically they, they didn't know how to get past that. And so that was a huge problem that uh, happened in almost every county that was dealing with it and, you know, took them uh, quite some time to figure out how to get around that issue. Uh, so, you know, if they're not thinking about really obvious small things like that, um, it, it's really a problem. Because, you know, the thing here is, you know, I'm currently in a public administration program. I know a lot of public administrators. Most people working for the state are just trying to do the best they can. And, you know, they deserve some handicap of criticism on that. But that being said, when the state is going to all these links to do these other things, as we've been talking about in this segment, and they're not being as transparent as they should be, it's really hard to give them the benefit of the doubt, and it's really hard to give them a pass when these these smaller problems pop up because it's part of a larger pattern of behavior on their part of not taking these issues seriously, not trying to do everything they can to prevent it from getting worse. And on that front, it you know it's our obligation to hold their feet to the fire to ensure that these problems are uh, known about and are worked to be resolved rather than letting them get a pass because uh, recognizing the truth that these are difficult issues. Well, I think that is a good place to close on. So let's move on to our second topic for the week. So as we stand on Tuesday night, the Rules Committee in the U.S. House is considering the legislation for two articles of impeachment that are likely to come to the floor on Wednesday afternoon or evening. You, by the time you hear this podcast, may already know the outcome of the vote on the House floor. But and on Tuesday night, it is expected that two articles of impeachment will pass the U.S. House of Representatives, that they will largely pass on party line votes, and that an impeachment trial will happen in the Senate in early 2020. Um, the latest news that I've seen generally describes 
movement of moderate Democrats towards being in favor of voting for these articles of impeachment. I've seen moderates like Kendra Horn from a relatively conservative district in Oklahoma, Mikey Sherrill, who I believe is from New Jersey, another moderate. There were several on on Tuesday, there were several announcements on Twitter in press releases of moderate what's what are being called frontline Democrats um, who are considered the majority makers for Speaker Pelosi, that they are largely moving towards supporting articles of impeachment. Um, there are a couple of notable exceptions, including a car including a congressman from New Jersey who is switching from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party because he has been a longtime opponent of impeachment basically since this issue was first launched after the whistleblower report. But that movement is generally also what we are seeing from members here in Georgia. Lucy McBath, probably the person in the most competitive district in the state, She has said that she will vote for articles of impeachment on the floor. Rob Woodall, retiring Republican, who is also, he is leaving a competitive district. It's one that Democrats have their eye on. He is a Republican. He is voting against impeachment articles and has been very critical of the process used by House Democrats. And otherwise, among the Georgia delegation, it is expected to be a party line vote. Megan, what is your reaction generally to Democrats, with a few minor exceptions, being largely unified on the question of impeachment, including members who may be vulnerable because they are in districts that might lean Republican. My reaction is that I feel like they are solid in the information that has been given to them, that they have a solid case for impeachment. Um, I know that that's hotly contested from the Republican side of things, but I, I just hope and I... I, I'm basing what I'm from what I'm seeing. I it seems that they're comfortable with the information that they're receiving. Now, as far as being concerned about possibly losing a seat, you know, one of the things that I really want our politicians to do is not to vote a certain way because they're afraid, or not to vote a certain way because their income is tied to maintaining this seat. I want them to vote based on what properly. What, what is right? What does the right thing? What f- makes the, the nation a more productive and um, prosperous place? What actually adheres to the Constitution? And so I applaud those Democrats who are in some unsafe seats for going ahead and actually saying that, yes, I'm going to vote based on this information that I've been given because it is correct and not waffle on it because they're afraid that they're going to get booted. Luke, part of the reason that there has been such unity among Democrats is that the impeachment case being made by Democrats is relatively narrow in nature. There are two articles of impeachment, one that is focused on the president's abuse of his power when he used the authority of his office to compel the president of Ukraine to announce an investigation into a 2020 political rival of his. Uh, The Ukrainian president ultimately didn't announce that investigation, but that was the uh, outcome that the president sought. That's one article of impeachment. The second article of impeachment is an allegation of obstruction of justice, where the president did not allow Congress to fully exercise its oversight responsibilities over the president by blocking testimony from some of his officials, by being reluctant to provide some documents to House investigators. Critics of this approach have said that this is not enough to really hold the president accountable for all of his misdeeds. They point to things related to the emoluments clause. They point to what essentially amount to policy decisions about detaining children at the border or uh, Trump's statements on race, pointing to the incident in Charlottesville where a woman was killed by a white nationalist. What do you think of the narrow case of impeachment here? Is there downside for Democrats to keeping this narrow and not making it about some of this broader set of offenses that people would like to see as the subject of articles of impeachment? I don't really think there is. Um, Let me tell you why. First, the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon were for pretty narrow reasons. And when they were making the arguments of why they were impeaching him, they sort of included the other 
uh, times that Nixon had done things that they thought were in, uh, impeachable and used those others' examples as basically proof that this was a pattern of behavior rather than, you know, it's like we're impeaching him in Article 1 for the time he did this and Article time, you know, 2 is the other time he did the same thing. I, I, I think as far as, like, creating a narrative, making people understand what is going on and why he's being impeached have the article be based in one single instance that's clearly one the worst thing i think trump has done as president as far as something that is blatantly impeachable and two is the you know easy to understand i i think that is a benefit not a flaw in how democrats have approached uh this issue the the other thing is too and i was talking about this with uh one of my professors is uh, the the this whole process has made me think about impeachment a lot more. And the thing I think someone should be impeached for is if they do something that is bad that literally only the president of the United States could do. Like that is why you should be impeached. Is if you do something bad that you the only reason you're able to do it is your president. And for Trump, that's pretty much the situation he's in, is that there's no other human being currently in the United States of America who could try to blackmail Ukraine to harm his political opponent by withholding this military aid. And focusing in on that and focusing in on this abuse of power and then his attempts to prevent Congress from looking into that abuse of power and getting to the bottom of it, I think is probably wise because... The emoluments issue, while like I personally think that he's probably violating the Constitution there, that's not really uh, something that Congress has taken the time to look into, and it's something that most people don't understand, and worst of all, is something that constitutionally just is not, is not clear. There's not a whole lot of examples. Uh, you know, I could tell you the history of it, and we could go into what the founders thought when they wrote it, and how uh, I think it's probably a violation, but with the court we have, with the Congress we have, that, you know, that's just a dog that probably isn't going to hunt. Uh, and then on the other issues, um, I, I would put those in like the Andrew Johnson category, which are, you know, uh, Andrew Johnson, the president right after Lincoln, very, very unpopular. He was impeached for a lot of things, but one of the things he was impeached for was basically being a racist and having really, really poor relations with Congress. Um, and I, I think that's bad, but I think it's also subjective. And the thing I would not want to see is, you know, uh, the next president after Trump, the Democrat, you know, Democratic president, being impeached over similar issues of you know uh, either just Republicans making something up along those lines, and so I think we're we're precedent sagging in both directions in that we're uh, trying to discourage bad behavior in the future, like what Trump did in Ukraine, but we're also trying to uh, not open up the floodgates so that you know for the next forty years every president gets impeached. Megan, Georgia is going to have a new senator starting in January. That is going to be Kelly Leffler, who has been appointed by Governor Kemp to serve in Johnny Isaacson's seat until the next election, where her name will then be on the ballot. Part of the rationale for picking her by Governor Kemp, and, and this was vocalized by defenders of his, was that Republicans are somewhat aware that they have a problem with voters in the suburbs who have become disgusted at national politics, largely driven by some of Trump's antics um, and the general vitriol in Washington, and that Kelly Loeffler is meant to be an antidote to some of that and to provide a different identity for the Republicans to put forward and to maybe highlight a different set of issues that might be more appealing to the voters who voted Democrat, in particularly in the Atlanta and other smaller city suburbs in Georgia in the 2018 elections. But Kelly Loeffler's first vote in the Senate might actually be to acquit Donald Trump. She gave her first interview since she was appointed to the AJC on Tuesday, where she said, this impeachment sham is an attack on what was a free and fair election, and I will stand strongly against impeachment and vote no. This is something that's been going on for years, and it's time to end it and get back to work for Georgians. Her first opportunity to take a high-profile vote in the U.S. Senate is going to be to stand with Donald Trump against what she argues is a sham impeachment. 
Do you think that that is going to allow her to deliver on the promise of her appointment, appealing to a different demographic than the one that is appealed to by Donald Trump and politicians in his mold, like Brian Kemp, Doug Collins, and other Republicans focused on rural Georgia? So maybe. It's probably not the... So here's the thing. I don't think that she was appointed to disagree with Trump and to disagree with Kemp and to really rock the boat in that sense. And so from that perspective, I think that she's doing exactly what she probably was expected to do and a lot of what she was, you know, what people want her to do. Now, as far as appealing to a different demographic, I think you have a lot of people who are on the fence about the impeachment process in general. Um, There are plenty of people, including the Republicans in the House that are saying that this process is unfair. And so I think that those people, those constituents in Georgia who might agree with that are maybe some of those constituents that Leffler will be able to swing by going ahead and supporting the president, but by being a very different candidate, by being the outsider, outsider that she says she is. Um, maybe to convince some people. The other thing is that um, Leffler, being a woman, uh, will appeal to a different demographic than a male would. Um, It's just one of those things that it's a little bit confusing for me as a woman who is a Democrat and um, not agreeing with some of the Republican stances that I feel are kind of anti-woman. But there are clearly women Republicans and when you see a woman Republican like this in a position of power, it makes people kind of pay attention and start to change their minds a little bit. And I think that she's going to do that too. Luke, what role do you think impeachment will play in next year's elections? I think it's an open question as to whether or not this will be something that this will be a story that continues. I mean, part of the reason that some people who are critical of the Democrats' approach to impeachment in Washington are critical of it is that they feel like voting on the articles, sending the process over to the Senate, where the Senate will almost certainly acquit President Trump, will basically shut the door on impeachment and shut the door on oversight generally, and that this will be an argument that Democrats have less ability to prosecute in next year's elections Um, But I think there's another side to this coin where maybe that's not the most compelling argument for Democrats to be making at all. What is your take on how much this is going to matter in November of 2020? My my instinct is that it's not going to matter at all uh, and that people won't even be thinking or talking about it because – you know, let's assume that nothing huge changes and, you know, that this is over early February at the latest – People are going to move on. Trump's going to do stupid shit. Other people are going to do things. It's it's just not going to be a story. It's going to be a thing that happened in the same way that the government was shut down, you know, uh, last year around this time. It's just going to be a thing that happened. I, I think it's not going to matter. I think people will use it as a talking point. I think Republicans will use it as a talking point how, you know, the best president we've ever had uh, has, you know, been treated so unfairly and that, you know, we need to get all the Democrats out of Congress and reelect Trump because of how unfairly he's been treated. And Democrats will use it as an argument for how Republicans are corrupt and we need to get them out of office. So, you know, on that front, I don't think, I don't think that, you know, the lights are going to come up on the first presidential debate between the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee. And the first question will be impeachment January, <laughs> January 2020. What happened in the Senate? What do you think? Like, no, like people just aren't going to talk about it. Now, to the other part of your question of like what Democrats should have done, Democrats are doing exactly what they should do. Because if anyone did this, I don't care who they are, they should be impeached for it. And, you know, people talk about the confusion around the term impeachment. I think that's true. I think people are confused. But the thing I think people are even more confused about than impeachment doesn't mean removal. Impeachment and no removal does not mean exoneration. It means that you were impeached and Trump will go down as the third president in the history of the United States to be impeached. And uh, you know, it would have been four, but Nixon uh, resigned before he, you know, got impeached. But, you know, like that is a black mark. It takes work to be impeached and Trump put in that work. 
So, like, it, that's not going to go away. The other thing is, it's not like if Trump gets exonerated, I mean, get, you know, if the Senate fails to remove Trump, and then Trump does something else that would make him impeachable, it's not like Democrats can't just impeach him again. And I'm not saying that if the Senate votes against removing him for the Ukraine scandal that the Democrats should just turn around and re-impeach him for it. Um, but what I'm saying is, like, if Trump takes the Senate not removing him as a blank check to do whatever he wants and then does something worse, it's not like we can't just do this again. And I think the real situation that we find ourselves in, and this is something I, I have to remind myself but other people of quite often, is that... Donald Trump, current president of the United States, received less votes than not president of the United States, current Senator Mitt Romney. The, you know, so it, it's not this situation where Trump is this amazing political behemoth that is impossible to be defeated. The situation we are in is that like Democrats need to feel like their votes matter. And had this happened, had this scandal happened, and Democrats just said, eh, that's fine. I don't think there's anything that would have been more demoralizing to all the people that worked really, really hard to elect a Democrat Congress. Like, voters aren't stupid. Voters understand that the Republican Party is bought and sold by Donald Trump, and they're going to do whatever is convenient for him. And the thing that's really convenient about this is that more and more, that is not me making a political argument. That is not me being partisan. That is what they say. Mitch McConnell just came out and said that he is working with the White House and he's going to do whatever Trump says and they're going to be lockstep with him on this. And, you know, like, the, it's, it's just, I don't see the downside. If they're going to play, if the Republicans are going to play this as a partisan game and Democrats are, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing, almost all the polling shows that Republican, Democrat, Independent, doesn't matter. Everyone thinks Trump did something wrong. Now, there's a lot of variation on the opinion of should Trump be removed for doing that thing? But pretty much everyone thinks he did something wrong. And so I really don't think there's a voter out there. And if that person exists is insincere, I'd love to talk to him. But I don't think there's a person out there who's like, you know, I really hate Donald Trump and I wasn't going to vote for him. But those Democrats impeached him and now I'm going to support him. I don't think that person exists. I hope that person doesn't exist. I think the other thing to keep in mind too, Luke, is that Democrats seem to have gained the most ground in this process by holding hearings that produced damning witness testimony that was then reported in newspapers across the country and on the nightly news. Um, it's sort of an old school media strategy approach, but congressional hearings tend to generate attention. And regardless of whether they go formally into a second impeachment process, if there is conduct that could be considered impeachable or at least approaching impeachable, if they have hearings on it and they get witnesses who say damning things about the president's conduct, that is a way for them to control the news cycle and continue to make it difficult for President Trump to make his argument about why he should be reelected. Uh, the Pod Save America guys have been on this point before where maybe the most damaging thing to Trump about this impeachment inquiry is that he did not have the fall and the winter of 2019 to define who he is and what he's accomplished as president and why he deserves four more years while Democrats themselves are dealing with divisions within the Democratic primary. Um, and it is worth remembering that investigations that repeatedly dredged up things on Benghazi and established a baseline view of Hillary Clinton were things that ultimately turned out to be damaging to her campaign when later revelations played into something that people already thought about her. So there are additional tools there beyond restarting the impeachment process and whether or not that would be viewed as a fair use of Democrats' power. Investigations are one tool in that toolbox. Yeah, and my, my final point on all of this is I, I, I think – the reason why this impeachment has not been successful, you know, because people always use the like, what if Barack Obama had done this? Like, no, it's like, what if any other president had done this? The reason why that Trump is not hurt by this is to the extent where he's like resigning from office and, you know, doing that embarrassing walk to Marine One for the last time is because we all knew he would do this. 
Like we all did. Like if you ask, you know, if you ask someone, do you think Donald Trump would do this? Yes, everyone would think he would do this. Um, and so I think it's just kind of baked in. And for the people that voted for him and support him and think about or are thinking about supporting him again, they just expect he would do this. And ha- had someone else done this, had George W. Bush done it, it probably would have caused him to resign. Uh, but the fact that this is baked in to people's perception of Donald Trump, I think protects him in a, in a strange way. Um, the other thing that I care about with this is I, I think the political ramifications and externalities and how this all ends up is impossible to measure, and it'll take decades to actually really understand. But I know for a fact, 25 years from now, when people are writing the history of this presidency, it will be unanimous that Trump should have been impeached for this and that the only reason he wasn't was political hackery and cowardice in the hands of Republicans in Congress on both sides of uh, the House and the Senate. And, like, it's unquestionable because the facts are unquestioned. They admitted the facts. And the only reason we're here is cowardice by Republicans because most of them, when they're trying to, you know, protect their butts for when Trump's eventually not president and they're saying, well, you know, behind the scenes, I was never supporting Trump. You know, no, in the history books, they're going to have that vote by their name uh, saying that, yes, they supported this and this is what they stand for. And that's how history should remember them. And I think Democrats not being on the side of cowardice and willing to stand up for doing the right thing, even if it's not going to work, is the only way that you should proceed uh, in public life. And so uh, damn the consequences. I think it's it's what has to be done because we have to lay some marker that this is unacceptable. Uh, as I mentioned before, but I think it's important to reiterate because we're at this point, being impeached is not great. Like, it's not a great thing. People don't like it. People don't want it. There's a reason Trump is so, you know, sent an angry, insane letter to Nancy Pelosi today. It's because he does not want to be the third president to be impeached. So that is not nothing. And there has not been a president's party that their candidate got impeached and then their party won the next election. So I I think, if anything, what this is accomplishing is encouraging a lot of voters who might have been considering voting for Trump in 2020 to not do it. Well, it is a slim margin of error for President Trump based on the outcome of the 2016 election. But for now, I think we are going to leave that there. Uh, So you will know the outcome of what happens in the House by the time you hear this, most likely Uh, But expect an impeachment trial in the Senate in January and then expect this to be maybe one of the defining moments of Trump's presidency as he runs for re-election. For now, though, we are going to leave that there. So, Luke, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And Megan, it was wonderful to have you back with us this week. Yeah, it was great to be back. Thank you so much. All righty. I will talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.